0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: All right, back to the conversation. On a topic I think that impacts a lot of us, it's one perhaps that uh, you struggle with. I know it's one that I struggle with, and that is the issue of worry. Family troubles, financial problems, whatever it might be, you worry. But what does that say of your relationship with God? And how do we address the destructive power of worry? That's what we're dealing with today. Her new book, Anxious, Choosing Faith in a World of Worry. Jack in San Jose. Jack, hello. Welcome. Come on in with your comment or question for Amy Simpson.
2: Thank you, Amy, for uh, saying, thank you, KFAX, for taking my call. Um, I do have uh, a lot of anxiety and worries. Well, I did have them in the past and I uh, came across my Christian mentor, Jamie Philippians 4, 6, and 7, that I have practically memorized that verse and I uh, recite that always as far as taking uh, my memory, my uh, worries, and just submit them to God and let Him take care of all the problems that I'm uh, facing. Pretty much we, we all created worry-free uh, I mean uh, we're filled with worries around us. We worry just about everything. And we think that, you know, we want to have a control of our life, and we want to be in charge of it, we want to be in control of it, but, and that's where we lose it.
1: You know we do, and that's an excellent observation, Jack. And maybe maybe you can address that. It's not that having concerns and worries are are not normal. Um, that's not something that we should say. Oh, I think worried about something. I got to go and confess. Uh, there's a healthy degree of worry. There's a natural degree of worry. But it's what we do with it. It's how we respond. And as the caller suggests, uh, being able to surrender to Scripture and surrender to God, and and use many scriptures that exhort us about how important it is to not worry and to surrender those concerns to God can really be a big key toward getting out from underneath the destructive power of worry, can't it?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's important to recognize that any habit of ours, any behavior, is really a reflection of, of something we believe. And so if we're you know if we have a habit of worry, we're worrying destructively, we need to examine, you know, what's the belief behind that and the way to combat that belief is to reaffirm what is actually true you know we're believing something probably that's false like i'm in charge of the world or you know everything's up to me or i can control this um or i can do a better job than god can and we need to tell ourselves things that are actually true and and reciting scripture is a a wonderful way to do that because those are god's words and they are true
1: all right. We well, thank you so much, Jack, for your call. That leaves the line open at 888-367-5329-888-FORKFAX. Is there a healthy degree of worry, Amy? And if so, how do we we keep that in balance? I mean, for example, there are days when I've left the house and I I get halfway down the street and I worry, hmm, did I, did I remember to turn off the stove? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I right. mean, there are certain types of worry that I would seem, uh, would seem to me can be can be healthy if they're kept in balance.
3: Yeah, and I would, I would really actually make a differentiation between, um, there between worry and anxiety because I would say that, you know, there's a healthy, that's a healthy degree of anxiety, you know, that um, if we're not sure whether we turned off the stove, we should, we should wonder about that. We should have a, a level of anxiety about that that will drive us to either go back and turn it off or turn it off next time. You know, it helps us to make wise decisions to anticipate things that might happen. Um, but if you were if you were to not do anything about that, and you were just to simply worry about it all day, mm. you know that's not a healthy response, and that's not a productive response. You're not actually accomplishing anything. Um, to address that problem.
1: You're so, so when worry comes about, yourself. then, there, there needs to be some kind of responsive action to it, not just to continue and wring your hands and, and uh, pace the floor, but to either surrender over to God or, you know, again, in the example, gee, I left the house, I wonder if I turned the stove off, I'm worried about that. Well, yeah, I can.
3: sometimes we're worrying because we're, we're, we're putting off taking action on something we actually should should do, and we worry about it instead.
1: Um, and God, God, I would suspect, then, always wants us to take action, whether it's responsive, like turning the car back around and heading home and double-checking and finding out, oh, guess what, I did forget to turn off the stove, or putting it in proper perspective and saying, you know what, uh, this is a crippling obsession, uh, it is threatening my well-being, I am trying to control something in the future – that I cannot control, and I need to therefore take positive steps, positive action to surrender that to God.
3: Exactly. And sometimes it is a matter of of acknowledging that we can't actually take any action. There may be a situation that we actually don't have the power to um, to change or to control, and in those cases we need to acknowledge. And, you know, we often speak of surrendering control to God, but what we're really doing when we do that is um, we're not surrendering anything. We're just acknowledging what's already true. You know, we're not giving God... Um, the responsibility for for the world, he already has it, so we just need to submit ourselves to that.
1: It's a little bit of again a, a sin nature here too, isn't it? because we're trying to wrestle from God control over things over which we have no control.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's you know it goes back to the Garden of Eden really in, in trying to be be like God or take on God's um, place in relationship to the universe, and we simply we simply don't have that that power, and and we simply have not been given control over everything. And thank God that we have not been, (laughs) Um, you know, because we certainly would not make it better.
1: We're visiting with Amy Simpson, author of Anxious, Choosing Faith in a World of Worry, something that all of us need to take a look at. I mean, there's a whole ton out there to be worried about. The problem is that sometimes we don't keep it in proper perspective. We allow the the obsessive nature of worry to become destructive. And, of course, that destructiveness can not only be crippling from an emotional standpoint, but also destructive in terms of the impact that it has on our relationships, ultimately our relationship with God. Because, as Amy suggests, oftentimes this issue of worry is one where we're trying to control something that we cannot control, that is uniquely in the hands of God. And we're suggesting maybe, what, through worry that we can do a better job than he can? We might not articulate it that way, but maybe our actions would suggest otherwise. A brief time out. back with more as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Well, as we have suggested on today's program, there are a lot of reasons why and things going on in the world around us and in your own personal life to worry. Lots of reasons to worry, all except one, and that is that God... It commands us not to worry. In fact, as as suggested by our guest today, we need to take a a strong look at our relationship with him and trust issues if we become overwhelmed by worry. And toward that end, this is an interesting topic in in your own personal life. Um, Amy, how have you struggled with this?
3: Yeah, I mean, this book really comes out of my own experience. I I have really spent a lifetime being a, a worried and anxious person, Um, but not really recognizing it for what it was, because I could always point to somebody else around me who was more worried than I was. Um, But God just really um, began to open my eyes to my own worry habits. A few years ago, when I was um, sitting in a a church service, and and I heard uh, Isaiah 40 being read. And, And for some reason, you know, I've been a Christian my whole life. I've heard these passages many times, but for some reason, I heard them, heard this in a new way. And and in Isaiah 40, when it talks about, God says, you know, who can compare to me, who is like me? No one. I am, you know, so strong and so mighty that I know all of the stars by name. And because of me, not one of them is missing. And I, for some reason, I that just hit home for me in a way it hadn't before, where I realized, you know, this, this God who is talking to his people in ancient times through the prophet Isaiah is the same God that I claim to trust and to worship. Mm. And here I am, kind of stewing in worry and in anxiety, and and trying to control things that are outside my control. And uh, you know, if he is keeping track of all the stars, and he knows all of them by name, boy, why do I think that I can't trust him with the things that that worry me and that threaten to overwhelm me? So I, I you know, I've been on a journey with that, and God has been addressing that with me, and and writing this book project, you know, is a, a part of that as well. So. I am still on that journey. I am certainly not worry-free, um, but God God's changing my habits and my heart's there, and He's doing it really through addressing my the beliefs that fuel my worry.
1: Is a big part of this too about priority and perspective. I asked that question because it we're reminded of um, what Jesus says in Luke twelve twenty two, where he says, I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough to eat or clothes to wear. Life is more than food, your body more than clothing. Don't be concerned about what to eat or what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world, but your heavenly Father already knows your needs. Therefore, seek the kingdom of God first above all else, and he will give you everything that you need, and the reference there to unbelievers puts this in perspective, doesn't it? Worry is what the world does. Worry, and obsessively so, is not what we as Christians should do.
3: Right. We are called to live differently, and we live in a very worried world. We live in a culture that not only worries a lot, but also values worry as a way to show that we're important, we're engaged, we care about the world around us, and is suspicious of people who are at peace. But we are called to live at peace. Um, and to live a life of faith and trust. And that is, a, that is a, a thing that will make us stand out as Christians in this world. And you're right, it's, sometimes it is a matter of, um, it's certainly a matter of perspective. Sometimes it's a matter of priority as well because worry can be a way um, of revealing to us that we are prioritizing our own concerns above those of God's. Mm. And sometimes just a matter of focusing on, okay, what is important to God in this situation? Can completely flip our perspective and make us realize that we are worrying over things that, you know, in in God's um, economy, aren't don't matter that much.
1: The, the bigger perspective, I mean, because otherwise yeah. we can be crippled as much by worry as by spiritual myopia—that that that sense of of, of short-sightedness or narrow sightedness that doesn't allow us to look beyond the current problem. And again, I want to be careful in underscoring that there are oftentimes uh, worries that come along over legitimate things, mm-hmm. making sure that you um, have enough money to pay the mortgage to keep a roof over the head of your children if your husband has lost his job or your wife has lost her job. That's a legitimate concern. Okay. And yet it shouldn't be a crippling one. And if we allow it to do so, doesn't that suggest a bit of a spiritual narrow-mindedness here that we think somehow that God can't see above and beyond the totality of all of our needs, including whether or not the rent is paid?
3: Yeah, exactly. Sometimes we get lost in our own uh, perspective and forget that there is a much larger perspective. And, of course, that doesn't mean, you know, I don't mean to minimize the things that that make us worry. And God doesn't either, really. If you look in Scripture, God never tells us, don't worry because there's nothing to worry about or because the things that you worry about are not unimportant. He says, you know, when He tells His people not to worry in Scripture, He always tells them why. And the reason he gives them is never based in um, their circumstances. It's always based in who he is. It's always that we are not to worry because of who God is. And And so regardless of our circumstances, he is greater than those circumstances.
1: And that really takes us back full circle to the initial portion of our conversation where we made that worry-trust correlation that, that really, at the end of the day, an extreme degree of worry is suggesting an extreme degree of lack of trust, and the ability to supplant worry with trust um, will will ultimately not only, quite frankly, give us a better night's sleep, but also enrich our spiritual walk and deepen our relationship with Christ.
3: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and actually, the you know, making a habit of practicing trust rather than, than worrying, sort of replacing the worry with not only... Uh, a change in our beliefs but a change in our practices Mm -hmm. can be a powerfully faith-deepening activity. So
1: this is something you have to purpose to do.
3: Yes, it is, especially in a a, a world where, uh, you know, the culture around us encourages us to worry, and a world where there are plenty of, of reasons to be worried. You know, if God is not on his throne, if God is not in charge of this world, and if he doesn't love us, we have every reason in the world to be worried
1: otherwise to recognize that this is not a one-and-done sort of approach, that in fact you need to renew your trust in Him. As a previous caller suggested, um, uh, committing to memory certain scriptures that help you gain uh, a proper balance and focus on a relationship and who's really in charge. Because as Amy points out, if God is not on the throne and God is not in charge, we are in a whole ton of trouble, and therefore you have every reason to worry yourself right into ground. If, however, you believe that God is still on the throne, still in charge, that he is the founder and creator of all that is around us, and there is nothing that is outside of his control, then it's a matter of surrendering the worry over to him, saying no to the enemy who wishes to preoccupy you with worry, and learning to deepen your trust in him. The book is called Anxious, Choosing Faith in a World of Worry, and the book newly published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at the Usual Suspects as well as through Amazon.com. Amy also has a website that you can check out, amysimpsononline.com. And Amy, thanks so much for the time and the insights tonight. There's Amy Simpson, Anxious. All right, be anxious for nothing.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. Certainly makes sense from a perspective of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, um, if we're in this re-lo- love relationship with the Lord and he has redeemed us, as we share that good news with others, don't we, ought to be, uh, don't we want to be articulate about um, what he's done in our life? And how we can change somebody else's life too? While certainly that's the desire, I think a lot of people when it comes to the matter of, of sharing their faith or evangelism get nervous. They get nervous because oftentimes we are afraid that somebody is going to ask us a question that we can't give an answer for. Oftentimes this goes to the heart of the question as to whether or not we are ready to give that answer for the hope that lies within brand new book out that uh, helps give some insight to some of the bigger questions and uh, appropriate answers to same. Written by Mark Middleberg, the book is called The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And Mark, great to have you on the show tonight.
4: Great to be with you.
1: I have to wonder, we look at some of these questions here, you know, what makes you sure that God exists? How can we trust the Bible? Uh, Wasn't Jesus just a good uh, man and teacher? Uh, are, Are very common questions to be sure. And one would think questions that at the base, every Christian would feel comfortable in answering. But obviously, a book like yours suggests that's not necessarily the case.
4: Yeah, you know, in a perfect world, I guess we should. But the, the real truth is a lot of us uh, grew up with the Christian faith. Our parents taught us as we were young, which is great. But when you're raised kind of on VBS and Sunday school and this is you know, being taught that this is true your whole life... And, and if you're mostly around Christians, then later when someone really looks you in the eye and says, "Yeah, but how do you know?" And you know, you believe the Bible. It's full of contradictions. It's based on myths. It's you know, how can you accept that? Well, a lot of us quite naturally feel intimidated by that because we just haven't prepared ourselves for that. So that's really the spirit of this book is to say these are the questions we're afraid of. This is based on a. So let's get ready, because if we feel ready, then we're much more willing to get into those conversations and much more likely to be used by God.
1: Now, for many years, you served as evangelism director at Willow Creek Community Church there in Chicago. Um, As you spoke with folks that were coming through your program, did there seem to be a commonality Um, over-intimidation by some of these questions, and I'm wondering how much of that might have gone to, as you suggest, maybe a sense of Christian isolationism where we really don't know the answer to these questions because we've never been asked them, Uh, and then to maybe to a level of just simple biblical illiteracy where a lot of folks are just not that familiar with Scripture enough to feel comfortable in in speaking to some of these questions.
4: Yeah, I I think that's very true. I think... uh... Again, I think sometimes as churches, we're a lot better at teaching, especially young people, teaching them what to believe but not why it's true. And so a lot of young people grow up learning the creeds, learning Bible verses, uh, being able to kind of parrot back the right answers. But again, I think in the training, and I'm a real advocate even in Sunday school classes, where we say, okay, let's let's role play here a little. I used to do this. When I was a high school Sunday school teacher, I'd say, for the next half hour, I'm going to be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, or I'm going to be a strong, you know, kind of atheistic evolutionist, and I'm going to challenge your ideas. And and at first it freaked the kids out, but then they, they really took to it because they, they realized, well, wait a minute, we have answers to these things. And so I think we just need to really force ourselves to think more and get more ready because truth is on our we we don't have to be afraid of these things, but we do as as the verse you quoted uh, 1 Peter three fifteen we do need to get prepared
1: there's a couple of issues here at hand too I think uh, I remember a number of years ago Norman Geisler was on the program, and we spent some time talking about what at the time was an increase in in how should I phrase this a, a debate really over whether or not it was necessary as a Christian to believe in a, a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, or whether or not that could have been simply a figurative event. And it was amazing to me the number of people that called in to our program that night that's felt as if, you know, whether or not it was a literal resurrection or a figurative one really didn't matter if at the core, you know, you kind of got the message. And, and it was a, a, a very big eye-opener for me in understanding that there oftentimes is a gulf of ignorance uh, between what we believe and even going down to the core of why we believe it. Do you think that's true?
4: I think it's very true, and I've been in Bible studies with all church people, evangelicals, who didn't believe in the Trinity or who thought they believed in it but would articulate it in a, in a way that was actually cultic. And so, again, I, my, my mission is not to shame all these people. My mission is to say, we just need to do a little more preparation. Uh, let's be honest, we need to do a lot more preparation.
1: And this, Mark, I I should hasten to add, is not just simply for the sake of more effective outreach and evangelism, but ultimately for deepening of our own walk with Jesus Christ. I mean, it it would seem to me um, it would be important for every believer to know why they are sure that God exists. Absolutely. I I think
4: all of these questions first speak to our own confidence and clarity as Christians, especially, again, young people. Not to equip them in particular, but really all of us. And then the second half is then we're going to be much more able to boldly and confidently and clearly articulate the message and explain to our non-Christian friends how they can know that it's true as well.
1: So very much a double-edged sword, cutting both ways, both in terms of being able to deepen our own faith walk and understanding and relationship with Jesus Christ, and then secondarily, once having been equipped with that information, being more effective toward giving that, uh, as we said earlier, that answer for the hope that lies within. Our conversation today with Mark Middleberg. a look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask. We'll come to some of those questions as our conversation continues right here on KFAX.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Mark Middleberg, my guest tonight. He is a former evangelism director of Willow Creek Community Church. His new book, The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. As you engaged in this survey, Mark, and I think all of these questions that you outline and detailed answers inside the pages of your new book are all vital ones, which one would you say, though, that tended to come up the most?
4: Well, <clears throat> and by the way, I need to apologize. I'm just getting over laryngitis. But... Not, not a problem. I'm operating with half of my voice uh, cut off here but uh the the very first question we addressed in the book was one of the top 2 on the survey and that is how do you know God exists you can't see him feel him hear him you know he's not a physical being and yet you're kind of staking your life and eternity on belief in him why do you do that and you know I think as Christians again a lot of us grew up knowing God believing in God experiencing God worshiping God It's just a normal part of what we believe and know to be true. And yet, when someone says it like that, it's very intimidating. And like, well, I don't know how to prove it to someone else. And so I addressed that one very first. That's chapter one in the book, which, by the way, I can give a website later where people can read that first chapter for free.
1: Why don't you do that right now, Mark?
4: Okay, it's it's thequestionswithanswers.com com. Right, and we've got uh, Lee Strobel did the foreword, that's there, and then the introduction, and then this first chapter, which is, you know, how do you know God exists? You can't see, feel, hear, or touch Him.
1: Let's, Let's address that question. How do we know that God exists? If you can't reach out and physically touch Him, and you're talking with someone who says, look, you know, God gets the blame for a lot of stuff, I just don't know that there's any evidence that God actually exists.
4: Well, it's a great question, and the first thing I say is don't ignore or discount your experience. Um, as a Christian, I grew up being taught this uh, as I grew up, but God is very real to me, and uh, I think anyone who's really walking with Jesus is able to t- talk about you know, ways he is real to them, ways he has led them, protected them, redirected them, even, even when he convicts us of being in the wrong or of sin that is god's activity in our lives so first thing i say is talk about that openly and boldly because it's real but if you just stop there the average non-christian's going to go okay well that's experience but I, you know i need evidence well i give two scientific arguments and then one that's more maybe a little more philosophical but uh the first thing i talk about in the chapter is the existence of the universe And I'm telling you, this has always been a good argument, but in the last 20, 30 years, science has reinforced this one in a huge way. And the basic argument is this. First of all, whatever begins to exist has a cause. In other words, things don't pop into existence on their own. So whatever has a beginning has a cause. second part of the argument says the universe had a beginning. And the beauty of this, again, is virtually every scientist now believes in some version of the big bang theory that at you know at a point you know a finite point in time there was a huge explosion at which everything that we call the universe came out of an infinitesimal point and scientists believe this and and I do too and I think genesis 1-1 describes it but they, they think it's a natural event. I just say it's a, a scientific description of a miracle. And so the universe did have a beginning. But then the third part of the argument is whatever had a beginning has a cause, the universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had to have a cause outside of it, a cause that is great enough to produce it, smart enough to produce it, powerful enough to produce it, old enough to be there to produce it, and artistic enough to make it as wonderful as it is. Well, I'm telling you, that's the God of the Bible. And that's, you know, science and philosophy point to this, you know, powerful reality that there is a God that is beyond all of this, who created it.
1: One of the other frequent questions that come up is dealing with the issue of the Bible. Of course, typically as Christians, we rely on... Scripture as the source of which we use for good, solid apologetics, as well we should. To the person who says, but wait a minute, the Bible was written by men, is wrought with all kinds of contradictions and errors and mistakes. How or why should we trust the Bible?
4: Again, a question that is very intimidating to a lot of Christians right up front, because they've always accepted it. And they're often tempted to just say, "Well, it says right here in Second Timothy that the Bible is inspired. It's the Word of God. It's, you know, profitable for correction and teaching, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And I agree with that. I agree with that verse. But that's not how you're going to prove it to your non-Christian friends. They're going to say that's just circular reasoning. You're just using the book I'm questioning to try to prove it. You can't do that. So, what what first thing I like to do, Craig, is when someone says, you know. So full of contradictions you can't trust it i just like to look at them and say you know contradictions bother me too but i'm just curious what are your top two or three and i'm telling you it's usually as silent as <laughs> what we just experienced because most people kind of parrot a cliche that they've heard and that is that the bible's full of contradictions and they haven't even looked into it they haven't read it for themselves they have no idea And you ask them what are their top two or three contradictions that bother them the most. They don't even have anything to say. And when that happens, which is the majority of the time, I'd like to then say, well, listen, before you start criticizing and writing off the book that has changed the lives of millions or really billions of people, you owe it to yourself to read it for yourself and look at it. Because you're going to find out it is true and it speaks to your heart. It speaks to your deepest needs. But. Now, some people will say, well, you know, there's contradictions there. Uh, you know, some of the Gospels say that there was an angel at the tomb. And then other Gospels say there were two angels at the tomb. And so you can't have, you know, it's either one or two. That's a contradiction. I can't trust a book that, you know, where the guys can't even count angels. When we run into those, kind, and by the way, that's the nature of most of what people call contradictions. And what I point out there, and this is what I talk about in the chapter in the questions Christians hope no one will ask, I explain that the nature of eyewitness testimony is that it's always incomplete. Uh, I live in Colorado. I'm looking out my window. I can very honestly say there is a pine tree out there. But, Craig, if you were sitting there, you may look out and say, what do you mean there's a pine tree? There's about a thousand pine trees out there. Well, we're both right. See, I didn't say there's only one pine tree. I just mentioned one of the pine trees I'm looking at. And so I gave less than full detail. You said there was a 1,000, and you're right too, but in reality there's a lot more than a 1,000 because I live in the middle of the woods. So those are just incomplete levels of information. And so going back to the Bible, one Gospel writer mentions an angel. He didn't say there's only one. He just mentioned that there was an angel. Then one of the other writers mentions how many there were. He says there were two. And as one person says, you know, here's a mathematical formula that's helpful. Wherever there's two, there's also one.
1: <laughs> isn't that good? That's, that's a good perspective and you know, it, the, the other issue here that I think can, can give us all a sense of a sigh of relief initially you think in a topic like this that it means that we have to get into to deep concentration and study and pull out the thesaurus and the concordances and spend hours on the internet doing research so that we can memorize all these details and data, but as you heard in those two exemplary uh, questions and answers, that it's really fairly basic. It's not that hard or involved if you know where to look and what to share. A look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask with answers. And as Mark mentions, if you'd like to read the first chapter online, you can do so for free. Go to thequestionswithanswers.com. That's the thequestionswithanswers.com. Dot com. And Mark Middleberg, thanks so much for the time. It's a great book and one that's an easy read and yet I believe a very important read for all Christians who want to not just deepen your own understanding and knowledge of the Scripture, but also how to better improve your ability at sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ.
0: Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group, all rights reserved.